The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. For many years, today's guest executed every move from the Big Idea Scale-Up Playbook. She and her co-founders came up with an innovative new idea and worked out how to do something that had never been accomplished before. They created the technology and systems to allow people to customise shoes in pretty much any way you could imagine and have a -a one-of-a-kind shoe made and sent to you within about two weeks. They were profitable from very early on, finding a customer that loved the ability to make their dream shoe. They then attracted top-tier investors and partnered with some of the world's top retailers, like Nordstrom, to grow from a niche product to the mass market. They followed every sensible step. Customer research, pilots, testing and building the infrastructure to make the leap to the mass market. Attracting $35 million of Australian dollars of funding, winning awards and making something completely new happen. And then, then it didn't work as they hoped. Maybe it was too much choice on offer. The mass market visited and didn't buy. The company tried to pivot but couldn't make the economies of scale work and they decided to pull the plug. It's a different kind of chat this week about when success is closing when the signals tell you and sharing what is hard learnt. To that end, our guest, co-founder of company Shoes of Prey, Jodie Fox, is with us here today to talk about her journey and to share her story called Reboot, probably more than you ever wanted to know about starting a global business. Jody, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And so, sorry, tell me right back at the beginning, how did you and your co-founders find the idea, like land on this idea of customizable shoes? Yeah, well, it was, it was actually a combination of each of us feeling passionate about something different that ultimately threaded into the one idea. So for myself, you know, I'd come from a background in advertising. I had this curiosity about building brands, but I also loved shoes. Uh, But the reason that I loved shoes was not something that I'd always had inherently (laughs) built into me. It was because I had gone overseas uh, and found someone that I could customize shoes with and had this awesome time sitting there picking materials, heel heights, and really just being able to express myself, uh, but also build something that I'd had in my mind. So frequently when we go to the store, we see something on the shelf and think, oh, you know, I love it, but I just wish it was a slightly different heel height or, oh, you know, I really love wearing this color, but it's not in season, so I can't get it. 
So, you know, I had in an hour and a half, I designed 14 pairs of shoes <laughs> on this one particular visit. And when I came home, uh, my girlfriends loved the idea and, you know, wanted to know where these shoes had come from and asked me to make shoes for them as well. And then this lined up next to uh, Mike Knapp and Michael Fox, my two co-founders. Uh, you know, they had been at Google for a little while then and they'd seen, you know, really big shifts in e-commerce where Australia was really just coming to, you know, a point in time where we were comfortable that if we gave our credit card details to somebody online that something would turn up. (laughs) So we were seeing this traction and they were seeing clients have really awesome growth and success in that. And they'd also both just read The Purple Cow by Seth Godin. And the premise of the book for anyone who hasn't read it, I'm sure many of you have, um, is simply that uh, if you create something that is instantly interesting to share, uh, then, you know, then you will do, you will simply do that. And it create gets a kind of virality of its own uh, that is uh, going to drive down your customer acquisition costs. And they were excited about e-commerce and figuring out an idea that had that kind of viral nature. And there I was doing the shoes. So it came together to be design your own shoes online. Wow. And like when you say 10 years ago, people were just getting uh, comfortable online. Like it's such a short amount of time in one way, isn't it? But it, it is remarkable that that was the first wave of e-commerce starting to really kind of find uh, mainstream traction. Yeah. And I mean, it, it could simply be my perception and experience of the industry, but we definitely had um, kind of retailers that are, you know, just finding, paving the way, I guess, particularly in Australia, obviously markets like the USA were far more developed in that respect. Mm. And particularly having come from catalog cultures, which were not as ingrained in Australia. Um, and the only reason I'm not saying New Zealand is because I'm not as deeply familiar with yeah. the New Zealand market. So please forgive me. It's not yeah. to <laughs> ignore no. where we are today. No, not um, at all. But uh, yeah, so I think, you know, we had people like Deals Direct really, you know, sort of kicking off the e-commerce um, scene in Australia, Kogan.com, which is gone on to be such an extraordinary success as well. Um, but yeah, there was this sort of, you know, blank space that was ready for us to explore. And a huge trend in there as well around customization. this idea that, you know, you didn't have to have uh, just the standard <laughs> thing on the shelf, but it hadn't really made itself to high-end, beautifully designed women's shoes. Well, actually, yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, it was... It was back in either the late 60s or early 70s that MIT published a paper predicting that mass customization would, in fact, be the future of retail. And it had only been really tested in many small ways. I think the the biggest early test was actually Burger King with a customizable burger mm. um, that, you know, that, that I could find in my research. And then we'd seen uh, various companies starting to have a look at this. So at the time that Shoes of Prey was coming about, <clears throat> there were companies where you could design your own chocolate, chocri, Um there were companies where mix my granola, <laughs> where you could create your own granola. So there, there were people testing it in different areas, but no one had really kind of cracked the code on it, but there was certainly a lot of curiosity about it. And I think that today, customization and personalization is certainly still something that um, we all hold a lot of curiosity about, but we've learned a lot more in particularly with Shoes of Prey, having you know really poked and prodded that and tested it significantly. There's a lot of learnings that we're excited to share because you know there is a lot of good foundational work there for you know people who are still exploring that area and want to take it further. When you started the company and got that first traction, like, um, you, you know, and we're not talking about the customization. people might think kind of they might have seen how 
Nike offers the ability to have like a different color on uh, the sole or something, or you, you know, like like tiny little details or, or that are, that are kind of added. Like it was quite remarkable customization, wasn't it? And so it burst onto the scene, uh, captured a lot of people's attention, and you're profitable from very early on, weren't you? We were, we were. Um, thank you. That's very kind of you. It was it was definitely a lot of fun to offer people the opportunity to really build their design from the ground up. Um, and really participating in the shape of the shoe, the heel height and things like that, instead of um, sort of add, adding some color choices to something that was already built. So, yeah, it really did go right down to the nuts and bolts of that design work, which, um, you know, I mean, potentially, as we'll get to later, you know, may have been part of why the traction was challenging in the mass market. But early on, we were very, we were profitable uh, within a couple of months. And that sort of cash flow positivity came from a couple of places. Um, and the, well, the primary place was that at that point in time, we were working with suppliers, external suppliers. And so a customer would tell us what they wanted upfront and pay us in full for it. And then we would commission the shoe with the designer. There was simply no other way to do it because every shoe was being made one at a time. But the knock-on effect of that was a very cash flow positive business. We weren't selling what we had. We were selling you what you wanted. And that, that idea of kind of on-demand manufacturing is still something I feel very passionately about. It sounds really hard. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, it was. How do you, like, you know, like part of the thing of, you know, mass production making things affordable is that through the standardization, mm-hmm. you iron out the kinks and then you just get better at all the things you do. And if you do everything one of a kind – there's no efficiencies, no economies of scale, no planning of, you know, uh, materials or the rest. Like, mm. wow. Like, yeah, like how do you actually go about creating <laughs> a, a one-of-a-kind production line? Yeah. So we – it was many years into the business that we actually explored that. So we attempted, first of all, to work with a number of different suppliers. And that journey – was challenging because you're right, all of their systems and processes are deeply ingrained in volume of the same thing. Um, in manufacturing, the, ma- the margins are quite slim. And so you really make your money in that volume area. Now, when we first approached the suppliers to work with, it was around the global financial crisis. There was, you know, there was capacity in factories and there was a curiosity to you know, fill it uh, and, and a curiosity about what we were doing, even though it wasn't a natural fit with what they had set up. So problems started to appear with that later on when those volumes did pick up back up with them when they were getting those mass orders again. And we would find that our orders would be relegated um, pretty significantly. And that's where we then, the pressure sort of happened to reveal that we needed to actually explore redesigning <laughs> that entire factory process. Um, there are still elements absolutely of on-demand manufacturing today that do still need volume because, you know, unless you controlled absolutely every single part of your supply chain. So, for example, we were still buying leather externally. We were still buying our you know, heel molds externally. Well, not heel molds, but the actual heels themselves. Um, and um, those those things do require a certain amount of volume for you to order to be able to receive them. So, you know, it's a it's a very deeply ingrained through multiple parts of the industry that. Um, but you know, I mean, the fact that we were able to capture a reasonable percentage of that and uh, of that industry and wrap it into our factory to be able to produce on demand was really exciting. As an idea, if you can crack that on demand, uh, it's more than just kind of giving people choice as well isn't it because there's so much waste 
in yeah. the fashion industry. It's just mind blowing. Yeah, this is something that I feel extremely passionately about. And going back to that idea before, you know, it's it's really about selling someone what they want, not just what you have in the room out the back. And it's a huge challenge for retailers as well because they don't want that situation either. Um, And if you draw the entire process out, and I'm going to speak in very general terms here, (laughs) um, you have, say, the material or textile person who will produce uh, all design and produce all of their materials maybe two years in advance. Uh, Then you have the factories that will come in and look at what's there. Maybe they'll create samples, um, you know, or, you know, maybe there's some sort of version of product development or trend prediction around them. Then you have the uh, buyers coming in and looking at what all of the labels have produced. That's taken them maybe eight months to get all their prototypes and samples ready. And then that doesn't, then you place your orders and they don't land in your store in front of customers for another eight months. Mm. So it's a really long process. And, um, there's a lot of crystal ball <laughs> going on in all of that because, you know, the textile maker doesn't know which which prints customers are going to want or, you know, what textures customers are going to want. The labels don't know what of their items are going to sell. Um, and so, you know, the retailer kind of takes a punt in buying all of these volumes of things and putting them in the store. Then if they have a product that does really well, um, frequently if they want to reorder, it takes a few months for the factory to produce that for them. Mm. Uh, by then the season's passed. Who knows if there's still going to be consumer interest at that level. And then, you know, in the opposite end of the spectrum, okay, let's say that you have a product that doesn't sell well at all and then you're stuck in a discounting cycle uh, just trying to get some recoup some of your cash for having purchase, made that purchase. So, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a nightmare for retailers but also environmentally as well. Um, of course, when we open up the environmental discussion specifically or particularly with retail, there are many, many elements to talk about. But, um, you know, I'm just sort of honing in on that one around, um, you know, the sort of volume of product every day. Oh, it's absolutely wild. Like, uh, if you happen to, uh, I, I used to work in a um, re- retail startup, and so I'd visit a lot of, I'd go to a place and visit a lot of different shopping malls in a day. And it's a funny thing to do, because as a normal consumer, you don't really visit five shopping malls in a day. But if you do, you <laughs> see that they've all got the same inventory, they've all got the same stores, and there's just so much of everything. Like, yeah. it just feels like, yeah, you're, you're in an absolute sea of um, of oversupply. Yeah, and it's kind of, it's really tricky for a consumer to separate those mindsets, I think, as well, because I know that I personally, when I walk into a store, I want you to have on your shelf what I want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's almost now that I do the majority of my shopping online. Um, however, when I do make the effort to turn up, I do want that thing instantly. And so, um, and even though I know what I believe in and what how mass, how mass manufacturing versus on-demand manufacturing works and the impacts, you know, I find myself, maybe it's sort of a, a lizard part of my brain that <laughs> switches on and says, but I want it now. And there's sort of a level of frustration challenge with having that sort of satisfaction. Of course, there are a lot of retail um retailers now attempting the sort of you know guide shop model of you know come try it on in here we'll deliver it to your house later which is really helpful but again there's like that little bit of psychology I think that we still need to crack um, with customers in terms of the expectations of uh, being able to get something in store versus online 
Yeah, it must be such a base thing of like you've gone out to do a bit of hunter gathering, and then you, <laughs> yes. you come home without anything, and you feel like you've failed. Yes, I'm you've sorry. Into the, the great savannah of Westfield. Um, yeah, like and, and that, that idea of like so so the the, the idea is really exciting. Like mm. from a customer level, um, you know, you can make your dream shoe, and yeah, like uh, for, from a um, societal issue, you know stop the problem of oversupply and match yeah. demand and supply perfectly and, and lower waste. And um, and it's cool. It's just a really exciting idea. And so so you landed, got traction, customers loved it, and some really big retailers and VCs became interested. Tell me about that process and that kind of how you went to decide to then go, okay, we, we're making good money, but we're going to yeah. scale up. We're going we're gonna to go big. Yeah, so it, that's actually a really interesting journey. And I think um, particularly for anyone with a a business that is getting traction it's such a such a crossroads to come up to up to um so for us we we wanted we set out the three of us with the mindset that we absolutely wanted to build a huge business you know we and I think that's potentially well in my opinion it's one of the first things to really consider are you building a business that you want to be more of a kind of a lifestyle business and just slowly, sustainably be growing that? And and lifestyle business can mean many things to different people, you know, just as success can. So it might be I want to make this amount of money for myself every year. Um, I don't want to necessarily push for these huge amounts of growth every year in the business, but I do want to see it growing. That might be one version, but that's very personal mm. of what that looks like. Um, then the other version is – no, I want to take, <laughs> I want, you know, that pinky in the brain thing, you know, yeah. we're going to do what we do every night, we're going to <laughs> take over the world, you know, um, I can't remember the exact line, so mm. forgive me for butchering that. But um, then there's there's that that kind of thought about, you know, okay, no, we want to grow something that is really game-changing, paradigm-shifting mm. um, and disrupt an entire industry. And, you know, we we hoped that we could do something like that and that was a very early mindset for us. So we initially didn't entertain the idea of venture capital simply because we didn't think that it would be at a valuation or in a, or a number that we could bring on board that would be interesting. And so we had a few conversations and didn't take it too seriously. And then we had one conversation quite a bit later that uh, helped us to understand what that framing might be to get to a number that would make sense for us to do it. And then that's when we started having much more serious conversations so to sort of peel it back to probably more of a high level, just rational couple of things, in addition to wanting to have that uh, major growth and have that sort of really large business, you know, we were looking, our customer acquisition costs were really low. We had a product that was in market and already had traction and there were loads of possibilities for what those scalable channels could be. And what we needed was to either bootstrap and slowly test those over time, slowly and gently test them, or to get the money in and put that jetpack on our backs <laughs> and explore those channels much, much more quickly and aggressively. Um, so given where our metrics were and the kind of traction that we had at that point in time, um, venture capital was interested in us and we were interested in them. It seems also like the perfect case for venture capital. You've got uh, early market traction of something that is going to be a bit inefficient because it's at such a small scale, but that requires a completely new approach to infrastructure and manufacturing and all the rest of it that a big 
burst of venture capital could create to then create the efficiencies and the economies of scale and you For own sure. the whole market and you're the mm. category maker. So it's like it's like the absolute kind of dream scenario <laughs> for how this kind of stuff works. And looking at the way that you executed from the outside and, you, you know, from hearing the way that the venture capitalists who've been involved in the process um, have spoken about how the team executed, it looks like you then did every one of those steps kind of in the way that you would expect was the best best kind of case. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really proud of what we achieved as a team uh, and executionally, it was really extraordinary what we got done and the amount of time that we got it done in. Um, of course, we are we are and were far from perfect, you know, and there were plenty of, you know, <laughs> failings, bad decisions, uh, you know, and lessons learned along the way. Um, but I just that's going to be the case in anything where there's a learning process and no more nowhere is that more evident than in building something that's never existed before so i yeah i would say that you know the the strategies that we put in place were robust and tested as best that we possibly could with research that was on our own customers on people that we wanted to be our customers working with some of those um strategics you know to learn from them about how their customers behaved as well and reaching as far beyond as we could and then looking into market trends too to really validate the kind of you know the thoughts that we were having before then putting into place you know pretty robust um you know and kind of tested amongst many brains (laughs) um, plan for execution so i and i really think that at the end of the day, that's that is really the best that you can do uh, to then go and discover what the answer is. And it's kind of part of the deal, isn't it, of venture capital? <laughs> yes. That like you, you take on venture capital because you're going to go really big <laughs> or go home. You don't. Yeah. You don't. There's, there's no midpoint. So it's kind of you make a promise, don't you, that you're going to you're going to push this to the absolute end, and uh, and and so that really means um, the the big punt. Yeah, and I think that. One of the really key things to um, you know, sort of say at this juncture is that there there aren't there are there are rarely victims at venture capital. You know, like we're both interested in each other and working together because we both believe that we've got the good foundation and ingredients to make this go big, and we all want to make it go big. Um, I remember reading the other day, and I should check my source on this, but uh, 90% of venture capital-backed businesses don't end up succeeding and, in fact, end up shuttering. And it's a a shockingly high number, but it also speaks to the level of risk that we're all taking to get to that, you know, that to be that company that does make it through. And that's a – there's a lot of really amazing stuff that gets built along the way. And I'm interested in that 90% because, you know, we, we talk a lot about failure being the place that we get the most learning. And I just wonder if we can talk more about that 90% to share more of those learnings so we can effectively draw maps of where potholes are, <laughs> point out, you know, share a little more data amongst us so that, you know, we can help to create our next ideas in a space that um, and in a, a time and a context that has, you know, a lot more information around us so that we can grow more quickly, better, stronger together. Yeah. Let, let's jump into a little bit about the, because um, I, I think that's really interesting the way that vent, the venture capital funders, they often reback people who they've backed that haven't worked out for them. Yes. So that's kind of the big kind of signal that, um, that you, you know things have been managed responsibly and the like, <laughs> and that it's a net good that yeah. um, 
that these things are tried and people get this experience. But it's quite a hard concept, isn't it, for your average Joe who sees like, um, you know, oh, here's these fancy you know, business people and they're out there spending all this money and they've got all these big valuations and then it doesn't work. And, and yeah, no, there's, there's a big gap in people's kind of um, yeah. understanding, isn't there? And I think I think that's really fair for the person who hasn't been involved in venture capital or a venture capital backed company to be like, oh, no, thanks. Like, why would I go near you? You failed in your company and you had so much money. You should have, you know, you should have made it. Um, so, and again, I think that's where kind of the conversations within 90% become really interesting because it's an unpacking of how venture capital works. And, you know, you're given that money not to put in the bank. You're given that money not to just be profitable overnight. You're given that money to spend, to make sure that, you have tested every single thing that could possibly make this idea go big today. <laughs> and so frequently um, that that is a turn to being intentionally unprofitable to sort of you know, really invest in sales, in marketing, in you know, all of these things that can make you go faster, go bigger, more quickly. Um, and when that cycle doesn't perpetuate and give you the results that you have, you know, made those big bets on, that's when you can get into trouble. Uh, so it's, and, and again, it's a, it's kind of a model that, and again, like it would be, I'm sure that you speak to venture capitalists, but I'm sure they would bring a lot of um, great detail to uh, that, that sort of psyche and model <laughs> venture capital. But of course, to someone who hasn't been involved in it, it's a really shocking idea. Hi, I'm Russell Brown, and I make a podcast for the spin-off called Actually Interesting. Those are also the initials of its topic, artificial intelligence, which is very interesting. You can find us on your favourite podcast providers or on thespinoff.co.nz. If you love the spin-off, the best way to show it is to become part of the spin-off members. This is the fund that helps us keep free and accessible to all without a paywall. It also funds some of our most important and acclaimed journalism. You can pay what you want, but for just $8 a month, you'll receive a package that includes our first book. Check it out through the spin-off. And that, you know, about the Shoes of Prey journey. So, you know, you, there was that big investment taken on board to, to go to the mass market and then what what kind of like metrics kind of put in place that you're hoping to then meet. And so you invest ahead of revenue and then you get to a point where you see that those metrics aren't being met. Like how yeah. do those conversations go? And what talk talk me through that kind of journey. Well they're very they're very stressful conversations. Um and I think that uh yeah, there are there are so many elements <laughs> that go into it. So one of the reasons that I called my book that extraordinarily long title of probably more than you wanted to know, da da da. Uh, even I'm not going to repeat the whole thing, but is because um, the probably more part is about the personal journey. Um, and I think that, you know, the, these elements that come into it are really powerful and challenging alongside keeping a clear head about what's going on. So I think some of the things that are really important um, throughout the journey are to always keep your investors updated with what's going on. And that's a really fine line to walk as well because you want to make sure that they're abreast of everything but not so much in the weeds with you <laughs> that you end up um, only having conversations with the investors and not making decisions and executing. So there is, there is a little bit of a fine line there. And that can be challenging for investors too because sometimes they'll be so um, passionate about that idea with you and they've put money on the line for it as well that they you know occasionally will want to have more involvement and that's something that you really have to communicate a lot about to make sure that you strike the right balance together um 
but yeah, so <laughs> keeping everyone across it, uh, you know, but also and being respectful of the money that has gone in um, and being honest and transparent about where you're at and what's working and what's not working and what your hypothesis about it is and what you're going to do about it. I would say with the really basic keys um, to, you know, continuing having those conversations and making sure that it didn't devolve into something that was um, sort of a, you know, a fight or something that is more scary because, you know, I mean, everyone has just backed this with this vision and hope that it's going to be this great big um, venture. And when things are, you know, looking shaky, you know, that that can give rise to lots of emotions and also to blame. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I don't, I don't feel at all that we had that in uh, our journey. However, I would say that on the inside of my own brain, (laughs) there was certainly um, lots of conversations, you know, sort of internally for me about um, going through that analysis, but having that emotional moment of well it should have been this or it should have been that and I think that's unavoidable unavoidable like a very human thing when you're going through the analysis of what should change and breaking that down especially when the entrepreneur narrative is the whole world said no and we said yes and we just went on and (laughs) everyone told us we were crazy and we pushed through and you, you know like we just never gave up and like it must be so hard in that kind of thing to be going well, you, you know, how much of this is just keeping everyone's spirits up and keeping on pushing? Because, you know, it's, it's making it sound like, you know, the, the way we're talking about it now makes it sound like nothing was working. But at this stage, you were selling millions of shoes. Yeah, like, <laughs> I mean, yeah. So there's still signals that are saying things are going really well. 100%. But, but what, what, what was it? Was it those key kind of economic indicators about the, the profit that you could get out of them just weren't coming through? Because the, there was, from the outside, like, you know, selling millions of shoes – doesn't Sounds seem like kind of a amazing, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. still growing year on year is amazing. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So, I think the um, the big shift. So, I'll kind of answer this in two ways. So, firstly, um, venture capital is there for you to prove really large year over year growth, and if you're not showing that really large year over year growth that you've geared the entire company towards in terms of your strategies, how you're investing the money, and all of that kind of thing then it becomes a question mark as to whether more money should go into that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when the company uh, is geared for that kind of growth, usually it's not profitable. You're investing you know, ahead of, um, ahead of your uh, money coming in on, of your profit um, on marketing, sales, hiring, you know, all of these kinds of things. Complicated new supply chains. Yes. <laughs> um, and then, you know, kind of the point at which it's sort of fight being you know, sort of you when you're hitting the point of not hitting those really big metrics and you've overinvested like this, then you need to look at ways to pull that back, whether it might be through, you know, we did have rounds of redundancies that I talk about in the book and <laughs> they were awful. Uh, you know, there are plenty of ways to look at cost cutting to try and, you know, sort of jam on the brakes and bring it back to a place where that um, that amount of money isn't being spent and maybe you can pull into profitability. But when you're in that situation, it really, you know, can turn on a, on a, on a dime because depending how long your runway is, your buffer and, you know, what you can do to change things, there are a limited number of um, levers you can pull um, and you may just need more money. Um, then in terms of sort of breaking down those specific metrics without walking you through our line by line, <laughs> um, 
because that's probably not that interesting, but just touching on a few areas. You know, we had anticipated really strong growth uh, in the mass market based off of the research that we had done. So there were a few areas that um, had come out of our research that the mass market said, if you can solve these couple of things, I am your customer for life. And, you know, some of those things were faster shipping. So I think that we started out around, you know, nine to 10 weeks, and then we were averaging 11 days for the moment that you ordered your shoes to you receiving them. So we solved that. Um, there was looking at, okay, can you make it, can you improve your distribution? Distribution. I'd love to be able to see some of the shoes. And we did that through opening stores. So there were a couple of things like that, that we then attributed um, growth metrics to. And some of those growth metrics, you know, were things like very normal things like customer acquisition, the lifetime value of our customer, um, you know, sort of, and those simply weren't marrying up. And then the year over year growth was not at the rate that we had expected. So they're kind of the key areas where we were identifying, okay, this is not going to plan. And you've um, identified there with that, that research with the customer saying, I'd love to have all of this customization <laughs> if only you can get it to me quicker and I can maybe have a little bit of a test. But then that kind of just fundamentally didn't happen, did it? Like that's mm. probably the, the real break point <laughs> is that people said I'd love this. Um, but then they came to the site and they checked. And I've seen a couple of people talk about, you know, maybe it was too much choice yeah, and yeah. maybe maybe the mass market actually is more of a follower of um fashions rather than make their own kind of thing. Yeah. What, what did you kind of land on through that kind of uh, process? Yeah, so I think a couple of things and also too, just in terms of our customer research, one thing that I should mention is um, we didn't only ask the customer and sort of learn from their direct responses. We also watched the customer behavior, whether that was through user testing, uh, seeing, you know, testing uh, different approaches through our user experience um, so there were many things where we wanted to hear what the customer had to say to us <laughs> through our surveys and discussions, but we also watched what they did to just check if there were any mm. discrepancies. Because I think sometimes as a consumer, it's really difficult to say what you want until you just see it. And then you go, oh, that's better. Why didn't that exist before? <laughs> mm. um, and then I think that kind of then also translates into you know, why the customization element was so tricky. Uh, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of heavy weight that the customer carries when they're deciding every element of design. And really designers are extraordinary, um, extraordinarily talented people in a very specific expertise who understand the impact of a certain line or uh, using a certain color. And we always respected that and used that expertise in developing our styles and then how they would be interchangeable. Um, but we were still passing probably too much of that onto the customer. And then something that encapsulates this <laughs> really well for me, but look, might be too much detail for people who don't think about customization as much as I am, but just bear with me. <laughs> There's this great um, Harvard Business Review article called The Four Faces of Customization. And it talks about, so the four faces it talks about are collaborative, which is you and I sit down together and we sketch and then we have a discussion and then I hand sew everything and it's very, very collaborative. Um, there's cosmetic, which is, hey, I'm going to throw your initials on this thing that I already made, <laughs> um, which, you know, I mean, people love. It's a great business. Um, then there's adaptive, which is what we were doing. And that's like, hey, man, I've got all of these Lego blocks. How do you want to put them together? So you kind of, you know, it's a bit of a mix of those one, those two. And then there's one called transparent. And transparent is something that I <laughs> thought about a lot 
um, and really played into a lot of my thinking around our direction as we were pivoting. Um, so transparent is the example they give in the article is a soap factory. (laughs) Um, and the soap factory goes to a client who is also a factory and says, Hey guys, so you said you need soap. What kind of soap do you want? And the factory's like, guys, I don't know. We just want soap that keeps everything clean and never runs out. And so they go in, they watch how it gets used, you know, where, what surfaces it get used on, what's it, what it, what it's cleaning up and all that kind of thing. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, the factory just always has soap that has the right amount of sudsiness that cleans up things well and they never run out. And it's it's sort of that that idea of collecting enough data to be able to just serve the customer what they want without giving the weight or burden of the actual process of customization to them. So companies that I think have done parts of that model really well, you know, Stitch Fix is an awesome example. Tell me all this data about you, the 90 questions when you first hit the website, and then I'm going to send you stuff that you love. <laughs> so I, I do think that there are ways customization is still super, you know, like interesting. I do think that the paralysis of choice is very, very real. Um, and I, I think that that was probably a part of the way the mass market didn't quite connect with Shoes of Prey. We did, uh, as go at, towards the end, kind of find there were three ways that we pivoted. Um, one of them was having more collection-driven, um, uh, you know, shoes as we were presenting them to uh, on the site in terms of our marketing and all that kind of stuff. I'd like to create some confidence, like, yeah. hey, these are the these are the styles that are in in fall, and you can exactly. choose which color and what height um, heel, as opposed to go nuts with anything as opposed to here's a giant blank canvas that's not terrifying at all yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and they, are, they, are, they, they were reasonably affordable versus other luxury high-end nice yes. shoes weren't they but it wasn't a trivial purchase for people as well so if you felt like you spent i don't know three hundred dollars and you got it wrong yeah. that could be a real big barrier to jump i guess yeah and that's why we had that really generous returns policy where 365 days you could return it unworn and we would either remake or refund you wow so yeah it was really really generous um and our return rate was actually pretty good. Um, it was different in different channels. So in the stores, it was much higher. Um, and, you know, part of that was in the US, particularly aligning with the Nordstrom returns policy, which um, is part of the reason they have such extraordinary, uh, I mean, they have, there's lots of reasons. They have lots of good clienteling and all that kind of thing and loyalty to their brand. Um, and that's, but that's definitely an element that builds that uh, trust with their customers. Um, and we learned a lot actually from working with them. They were such an extraordinary retailer. And in amongst all of this complexity, uh, there's a chapter in your book uh, titled Working With Your Ex. (laughs) Yes. You started the company (laughs) with your husband and then somewhere along the way were no longer husband and wife. Yes, I ended it with my (laughs) ex-husband, the company. (laughs) And and, and kind of six years later, but continued to kind of build the business together. Yeah. That sounds complicated. It is, it is. You know, on-demand manufacturing, mass customization and working with your (laughs) ex-husband. And then there were a few other things that came later in the business that were equally as challenging. So I guess we'll get to those. (laughs) In a highly stressful environment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So look, um, yeah, Michael and I, so, obviously Michael Fox, Jody Fox, yeah. Um, we married before we started the business and I think it was about three years in when we separated. And we, gosh, you know, we tried everything to try and solve whatever this malaise was in our relationship. And, you know, there comes a point where, you know, you've tried everything, but it's still really hard to make the call. And I'll never forget, <laughs> um, we made that decision sitting in our little tiny apartment in Surrey Hills and um, 
I just remember saying to him, look, you take everything. I don't want anything. And he was, he was like, no, you take everything. I don't want anything. <laughs> and, and I mean, of course, you know, we were in the middle of a business where we hadn't paid our salaries, ourselves salaries for a little while. And, you know, we, um, were relying on savings and there wasn't a lot to lose at that point. But I think also too, that genuinely it was such a mutual decision. Um, yeah, then bringing that into the office. Um, so we, for two months, we didn't tell our team. Uh, and you know, it was kind of crazy that this very personal thing that we were going through needed to be a business consideration as well. By that stage we had taken funding and we felt that there was, you know, we, we knew actually that our investors had considered it to be one of the risk points in the investment. So we had to tell them (laughs) that we had divorced and to their credit, they behaved like the most gracious, extraordinary humans. Um, and, and, you know, sort of, did we both still want to be in the business? How would we make that work? And then continued on, which was quite extraordinary. Um, and then telling our team was actually pretty tough <laughs> because, you know, we really were like, a, we used to describe ourselves as kind of like a family, but, you know, one that played like high level sport together where we knew that we needed to train and turn up and, you know, be good at what we did as good as each other to make this really fly and build that high performance culture. Um, so yeah, we, we thought a lot about it and first we were going to tell everyone one at a time because the office was about 25 people and then we're like, no, 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 terrible idea. People will come in and then they'll go out looking sad and people will think they're being fired, you know, this is <laughs> and so we ended up doing it team by team. Uh, and everyone kind of absorbed the news. The thing that to me was probably most comforting was that by that stage, Michael and I had been separated for two months and we hadn't been living together and our team hadn't noticed. So, you know, we had always been really diligent about not bringing our relationship to the office um, in any way. And so, and that served us well in that moment as well. It's so hard, isn't it? When you're so like um, associated with your, your brand or your product or your company that you don't have that privacy and those kind of things as well. And just that extra, but then six years of, of growth after that with managing it and it not being an issue, which is mm. like, sounds pretty remarkable. Yeah. I mean, there, there was a lot of communication. <laughs> so look, I'm, I'm not saying it was easy mm. at all. So we, we did a lot of, um, you know, Michael and I, you know, knowing each other as well as we did, we were together for 10 years. Um, could you know we'd be in meetings and we'd read between the lines of what each other was saying or we'd just know that button to push or whatever and what we got really diligent at was saying hey can I just grab you for two minutes and going into a room talking out whatever the trigger trigger had happened and you know quickly and just getting to an amicable spot and then continuing on with the day it's also really exhausting um just you know like getting through the weight of that decision but keeping on focused with the business as well. So, you know, there was there was a lot of um, kind of exhaustion around that. And then there was kind of things that are funny now, but, you know, were kind of interesting then. Like we both lived in Surrey Hills. So we like drew a line down the middle of Surrey Hills. And we're like, okay, you date on that side of Surrey Hills. I'll date on this side of Surrey Hills. And ne- now, you know, never will we have the situation where we bump into each other. <laughs> and no dates are allowed to meet either of us at the office. And, you know, all these kinds of things that seemed a little crazy then. But honestly, I think we were just trying to find ways to avoid any la- emotional landmines so that we really could keep working together. And then I think, you know, the tough, the really, you know, the really, you know, there were, there were a couple of tough things. So, you know, like it meant Michael and Mike were quite close before they we started the business. 
and they kind of, you know, spent was then spending a lot more time together and they would just naturally have conversations about the business that then I wasn't present for. So that was really tough to work through. Um, and again, that's not malicious. Like it's just a product of this <laughs> natural thing that happens when you break up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, it's actually really interesting. Michael left the business um, kind of early to mid last year and actually would have been earlier last year. And, you know, I realized as he was leaving that, he was the person that I'd seen the most for like the last 15 years of my life. You know, he'd been my boyfriend, he'd been my husband, he'd been my ex-husband, <laughs> you know, my co-founder. And as he was leaving, it just really struck me that this person who had been so much a part of the fiber of those days was going. And it, um, yeah, that was, that was probably actually one of the biggest emotional moments, you know, alongside the divorce in the sort of process of uh the business and obviously by that stage the business was in a, a really tough position um and just needed to be seen through to the the end and doing that you know it was, yeah it was tough really tough and how do you responsibly do that like um you know the, the book that you've written kind of like is so great to shine a light on what actually happens when the best laid plans don't work through and then you have to kind of responsibly and uh with a lot of communication um wind it down like because I, I I mean how did how did that go because you must have been kind of well if we hadn't gone so big we probably could have stayed profitable and had a yeah. niche kind of business and must be a whole lot of mixed emotions but then the team yeah totally so yeah look there were tons of mixed emotions and sure on reflection <clears throat> you know we got to the end of the testing and we found that we were actually overperforming in a niche not and that wasn't going to translate to the mass market but literally no one could have known that mm. until we actually tried all of those things. So, um, you know, I, I think that that's where any kind of sense of blame and what if, you know, gets kind of sort of finds its peace with that in that way. Um, but in terms of the, um, the actual journey of how to do that, <laughs> um, I guess, you know, the process itself actually – really stripped everything out of me it was something that you know I kind of lost so many of those markers of day-to-day um there were a lot of challenging conversations there were approaches to do things that I personally couldn't abide by ethically (laughs) um and the place that I figured out how to put one foot in front of the other during all of that was by being completely stripped back to my core values and just making every decision based off of what I believed in. And I really think that's why I can still sleep today <laughs> through the night. And I mean, sure, there are, there are things that kind of um, in, in sharing so much of this journey, um, I realize it's a little bit strange because the things that happened were so deeply personal and scary and things, you know, we usually seek to bury failure. So why talk about it? I guess partly it's Honestly, it's cathartic. It's to give this a place in the world to know how it the story ends. Um, although in saying that, the company is in a solvent liquidation in Australia of the assets. So I guess that, you know, there is a version of events where it could exist again. But anyway, just, mm. you know, for this part of the journey. Um, and then the other, the other thing is that, to be really honest with you, as I wrote the book, I really was concentrating on the project and it dawned on me just as it was going onto the printers that other people might read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but hopefully it helps have the conversations for that 90% or that 98% that don't make it through the first year mm. who have wanted these same things or had similar experiences, you know, that they're, we actually, it's more common than you think. 
I guess one of the you know silver linings is that in the venture deal, the venture capitalists have provided the money. You're doing it to a pre-budget. The money runs out, and if you're responsibly managing it, it's not like you're running your own family business or something and you get into trouble and then you personally owe a bunch of suppliers and the people you've worked with don't get paid and the like. By doing it in a manageable way, you're able to kind of uh, what wrap it up in a in a way that's more um, a better outcome for more people. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, <clears throat> there are many, many ways that companies can close. Um, and I think that if you're really keeping your eye on the ball with your cash burn and where that end of runway might be, and this is going to sound very, very strange, but if you are in that situation, you'll know that it's actually not a finite thing. <laughs> There's so many movable parts to it that you never quite know exactly where that end is, but you know roughly where it is. Um, but yeah, you can manage it in a really ethical way. So a good example, I think of that is when we were about to enter into this really tough phase, I, we had always been very transparent with our team and I gave a presentation to the headquarters where I laid out literally like a, a timeline saying, this is where I think the end of the runway is on this date with this much and here are all the dates and steps for things that we're trying to execute um, so that we don't hit that. <clears throat> and then as that became closer and closer, I would update them multiple times a week and I remember saying to them at one point, listen, um, this is really uncomfortable for all of us. And I know that you're all human beings who need to pay your rent, get your bills paid and all that kind of stuff. So if you would feel more comfortable to take some interviews, to just know that there are other things out there, I will write you a reference. <laughs> I will support you to do that. But the things that I ask of you are just don't disclose where we're at to the recruiters or people that you're speaking to like just pop it to the side um, because it's too complicated to be opening up this to the rest of the world right now um, secondly you know be discreet like if you need to pop out during the day I don't I don't want the team morale to be put off by <laughs> you being like right I'm going out for a job interview guys <laughs> <laughs> and thirdly I need you to stay the course with me in terms of getting tasks done um, and still performing because if we're going to make it through this we're only going to make it together and not a single person left. Everyone stayed the course with us. And it was, I think, just that mutual nod of respect of saying, you know, as as your employer, as the place that you've signed up to, you know, I, I respect that you have a day-to-day -day as well. And then I think in turn they respected that we needed to try and do all of these things and execute all these things as a company. Um, that same conversation happened with our China team and when I had to stand in front of the 140 people and let them go later that day, um, Lily and Simon and Howard came to see me and they were part of some of the team leads and the manager for the factory floor and the general manager came back to me and they were like, Jody, Jody, there are still shoe orders on the line. And I said, yeah, I know. I spoke to the, the and they're like, they're not going to get made. And I said, yeah, I know. I spoke to customer service and we're going to refund people who won't receive the shoes that they ordered. And they're like, no, 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 stop, stop. We want to make the shoes. <laughs> I said, but, I, but you're you're redundant. I don't have any more money to pay you. And they're like, yeah, no, 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 no. We want to do it. And the whole factory stayed. The room, I let them go on a Tuesday morning. They stayed till Friday night to get those shoes done. And again, I think it's just having that mutual respect is what I put it down to to say, okay, you know, this is not going great. You're not going to have to pay for it, so to speak, with this nasty surprise. This is how it looks. And when you look at the the 
backgrounds of so many successful founders. They've been through uh, companies that didn't go to plan. They've pivoted. You know, they've done, they've done these things. And and to hear the way that the venture capitalists have been involved, you know, they're, they're the kind of people, um, you know, blurbing your book, saying, you know, how, 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 how great this process has been. And, and it wasn't the outcome you wanted. But no. it's really amazing to see how you've managed to turn this into something to share and that other people can kind of understand for that 90% of companies. Yeah, and I I really hope that's what happens. I mean, it's so early on. And um, to be completely honest with you, I'm actually terrified <laughs> about, you know, once you, once you create something and put it into the world, it's really up to how people receive that. Um, and what I've written is pretty personal and real. Uh, so, you know, I'm really scared of, the personal judgment that may come in and all that kind of thing. And people have the right to do that. Um, But I really hope that for the people that are in that game, you know, whether, and there's a lot in the book about kind of career choices and, you know, personal decision-making structures and things like that. So I hope people who um, can relate to those really find Mm -hmm. just one thing in there that shines a light or that makes them not feel alone. And then in that case, it'll totally be worth it. And one question, a final thing that we um, we ask everyone, like, what is success for you and how has this process changed <laughs> that feeling of uh, what success is? That's a really good question. <laughs> okay, so in terms of what success is, so I think, I think success is just being a good human, actually. And being a good human, being decent, um were and being able to put my hand on my heart and say that I behaved that way through particularly the end of the business um, has given me a sense of groundedness and confidence that was always missing for me. Um, and that sort of scary of self-belief that I hold on to like nothing else because I didn't have that before this process. And it's so strange that such a massive process of failure, to be honest, (laughs) could give that. So I think it's just being a good human being and also giving space for the personal stuff. I didn't really do that during Shoes of Prey. Um, And since then I've gotten married, best decision I've ever made to the most awesome man on the planet Um, and gotten pregnant. So I think that, you know, there's kind of making space for life to happen. And then in every aspect of your life, just being a good human is my definition of success. Yeah, I love that idea of if I can get through this failure, I can succeed at anything. It's, <laughs> it's quite I amazing. Mean, it, it's wild. And going back to that idea too, that VCs, you know, that there are funds now that only back founders who have had a, you know, had a good crack at a company before. Um, I think it's Scott Butterfield, the founder of Slack, was his VCs backed him multiple times over on gaming companies until he happened across slack throughout the processes and systems that he was developing for his own office and I mean that's really cool Mm. so it does speak really strongly to that thing out there of um, venture capitalists are investing in people (laughs) Uh, so you know really caring deeply about um, and being really detailed with what it is that you're deciding to go to venture capital for does matter Mm. Well, thank you so much for joining us to chat. There's a lot we didn't get to uh, in the book. Uh, that's um, Jodie Fox of Shoes of Prey, and the book's called Reboot, probably more than you ever wanted to know about starting a global business. And thanks so much for sharing your story today. You're welcome.
Thank you so much to Tina Tiller for producing. And thank you, as ever, for having us along. And listen, if you are a fan and follower of the spin-off, make sure you check out the spin-off members, uh, a program where you're able to get behind and support and choose and shape the investigative journalism that the spin-off provides. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by the spin-off, and Callahan Innovation. From the Spin Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by Spark Lab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.